Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Fumbo Diplomacy Podcast. I'm uh, feeling a little bit sick uh, these days, just a tiny bit of a sore throat, stuffy nose, but it is almost Chinese New Year, you can hear maybe on the recording, um, drums outside, the lion dance out in Chinatown here in San Francisco. Uh, not to mention it's also around Super Bowl time. Super Bowl is coming up next Sunday. Um, should be exciting in the city. So let's get the business out of the way. We can jump right into this week's episode. Um, if you guys use Amazon and want to support the podcast, please go on funbulletdiplomacy.com. It's my website. And on the right-hand side of any page, you'll find my Amazon portal link. Click on the link and shop on Amazon as you normally would. And I'll get a small cut. Uh, from your purchase total uh, to continue putting out episodes. Um, and as always, um, we're also sponsored, not really, just have a discount code from the Pacific Trade Winds Hostel, where I work and live. And if you have any plans to come to the city or want to just hang out with me, uh, you can use the discount code. For three dollars off, use the code Wayman's Friend Three. That's W E I M I N S F R I E N D Three to get the discount when you make a reservation online. So, uh, fire trucks outside. Hopefully, there's no fires going on during the Super Bowl or Chinese New Year celebrations. Um, so, thanks everyone, um, and. Enjoy this week's episode with uh, my friend Nuno Nevish. Welcome to a new episode of Fun Boat Diplomacy, recording from San Francisco at No Matter What Working Space. I'm here with Nuno Nevish. Hello, Nuno. Thanks for being here. Hey, welcome. You want to introduce yourself to the podcast audience? Yeah, sure. Um, my name's Nuno. I'm from Portugal. Um, I'm currently working on a graphic novel named The Story by Everyone. It's kind of mainly the reason that I'm here. Um, I'm traveling around uh, the cities that I that I either work in or uh, that call me for whichever reasons. And I basically re- record my interactions in this book. It kind of started off as a, as a sketchbook, an exercise of storyboarding, which is my main job. And uh, it just gradually turned into this book that is now sort of commanding my life. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm on about right now. Well, what are uh, you have some examples of the stories that you have in this book? Let me think. Um, it's quite it's quite a few characters. Um, for example, um, I started making this book in April. Um, it was just a few months after I quit my job as a film editor in London. And um, since then, I've been living in a friend's couch uh, for about four months uh, back in London because the rent was so high. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those cities that you just end up working to pay your rent. And um, so I kind of I had a little bit of money on the side and asked this friend if uh, if he'll help me out. I just need to crash. And uh, he said, yeah, sure, as long as you're, you know, fighting for your dreams and, and whatnot. So uh, every day I get out of the house, I get myself a latte, and um, 
I'll basically sit down and, and just draw what happened around me and the people and, the, and their interactions. And so uh, there was this new sketchbook that I bought, and I just started, you know, making it all in little squares as if it was a sequence of storyboards. And eventually people start asking me, oh, are you writing a comic? And I'll kind of be like, no, not really. It's just in a little exercise of perception in the sequence. And uh, there was this guy, Max, um, I was in, uh, my favorite coffee, uh, in, uh, in London. It's in Shoreditch. It's called All Press. And, uh, I used to go there every day to draw. I already knew the stuff. And there's this guy, Max, he sits right across me. And I had this drawing of a motorbike. And he turns to me and he says, well, that reminds me of, that makes me want to ride a motorbike. So, um, I immediately, um, start asking him about, you know, what is it that he does. And he says he's an actor. He was actually studying, uh, for a role in the U.S., for a little casting session. And, um, and so I thought, well, cool. And, uh, and he was kind of nervous about it. So out of just a little sort of a gesture of generosity, I guess, I just, um, I started drawing him after he went back to studying. So I just drew, you know, basically a really simple description. Max is an actor. Um, he's studying for a role in the U.S. I think he's got the profile. So when I drew, I think he's got the profile, I drew him from the side when he wasn't looking and, uh, and him studying and I drew the thing of him studying and I made this little, you know, just one panel story and he looks at it and he's like, well, that's amazing. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, I guess it's, uh, it's, uh, it could be a fun thing to add people to the book. And he's like, yeah, definitely you should do that. So, uh, I started doing that. I, I would basically sit in a location and start drawing it whatever I feel like a story could start from. And I would let these people that I met, that I met guide my book rather than being a book about myself. And, um, and that's how I started going from place to place and exploring the city with a completely different mindset. So right after that, I met a, a young woman named, um, her name is Kate. Um, she's owner of Covert Design. And she invited me to her studio. And I went there. She was part of Second Home. It's like a big hub. For, uh, for all kinds of designers and, and still in London. Yeah, still in London. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I went there and immediately it's like this whole universe in itself. So many companies and everybody's related to art and design and, and, uh, and editorial. And, um, when they found out about my book and the concept of it, they just kind of, they, they wanted me around so much that they offered me a free membership. So I was there like unofficially for like three months, became my working space. I had free coffee and free tea and, and even even breakfasts. So I kind of made it my temple. So every morning I'd go there and kind of work on these stories. And um, it was funny because I made this book that st suddenly started taking me to places. It was like I didn't think that I would go there. I was just exploring and letting myself be driven by the story. So this book became sort of an entity that began to kind of direct my life and not the other way around. And which is quite, it's quite surreal, you know, because, uh, it's, it, it's the reason that I'm staying here in San Francisco at the moment, because, uh, I went to LA for, um, an animation convention and kind of meet the industry there, but I didn't really feel, I didn't really connect with the city or its people. So when I came to San Francisco to meet my mentor, his name is Sergio Paez. Uh, he's worked for Industrial Light and Magic and a few other good companies as a storyboard artist. And he's now my coach. And 
you know, we're supposed to do the coaching online, but I said, well, you know, I'm going to be in LA. I might as well uh, go to San Francisco since in the, it's in the same state. But little did I know that it was 10 hours apart. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what, screw it. So I came up to San Francisco and I met this guy and uh, like straight out of the, you know, a night ride. And it was, it was incredible because he's living the dream. He's doing the job that I want to do. And he's, he says that, yeah, there is struggle, but it is worth it because if you got the skill, it's a great job to do. And, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of being like, you know, you can make as much as a doctor does if you're really, really good. So it's kind of, you know, that's kind of the, the long-term plan. And uh, what happened was after his talk, I just went for a walk around Chinatown uh, towards the hostel. And I was completely marveled by the architecture of the city and the way that it unfolds itself, the way that the skyscrapers shape the, the skyline and, and how they shade each other and how the light is filtered th through them and, and kind of has these little spotlights where people walk through and it's kind of everything is so well balanced. It's not, it's not cluttered. It's a really, there's a lot going on, but everything is so well positioned that the city just everywhere you look is a perfect layout. And so I just had this urge to draw it all. So um, instead of going back to LA, I mean, I went there for a couple of days for the animation convention, but I just came back because I felt like the city was calling me to make my story here. And, uh, and that's why I'm, that's what I'm doing now. You know, every morning, wake up at seven, get myself a coffee and I hunt for stories. And, um, and it's, it's incredible because there's so much history in this city and, I think if I wasn't doing this book, I wouldn't be able to process it. I wouldn't take as much with me as I do just by sitting down in one place and, and staying there for more than one hour, just looking at and trying to dig up what is the psychology of it and, and what is it that catches my attention. And ultimately, the thing about this book is, I'm, you know, I'm kind of expanding the, the question there, but uh, the thing is, it's just an exercise of perception of showing people um, my version of the world through my excitement and the love that I have for it and sort of try to reopen them to connect with each other. And it's completely analogic. It's, it's all done by hand and it's all done on location. So I don't take pictures of the people that I meet. I try to do it for either from memory or from the location. So it's kind of a, a life, a live um, graphic novel and all the, Everything that happens there is real, and and if I want to make something, if I want to write about something, I have to make it happen. So in the way, I'm kind of the victim of my own process, but it is, um, it definitely is. Um, I think I couldn't think of a better way to live right now, you know. And uh, it really brings everything together of my personality and how I interact with people, with uh, the spontaneity. Uh, spontaneity? Mm -hmm. How this? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And spontaneity of my drawing. So it really feels like it's the best thing to do. Now, the thing is, you know, money and such and such. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just finding that balance. Um, but yeah, so in terms of stories, it's just, you know, whatever, whomever has something that catches my attention. For instance, um, there was my friend Otto. He came down to, to meet me in my friend's house where I was staying. So, you know, I was already a guest, so he was the guest of the guest. And the guest of the guest uh, just spent the whole first day just sleeping on the floor because he was really tired from his trip. 
And then the, the following day, I wake up and I go to the toilet and the tap is broken. You know, he broke the sink. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suspected he was my friend, um, my friend Otto, the, the, my guest, <laughs> my guest. Um, and basically, I went to my host, the Mola, and I asked him, hey, uh, did, you bring, did you break your sink by any chance lately? And he says, no. And I said, okay, just give me a moment. So I woke up Otto and he went to get some DIY stuff. And um, in the meantime, you know, Otto was telling me how, because me and Otto, you know, our friendship goes way back. And uh, he knows about my, um, we talk a lot, a lot about, you know, our families and stuff. And he just out of the blue was just telling me how I should get my dad to take some shrooms to open up his feelings. And, um, and it was funny because, um when, uh, as we were talking about this and buying the DIY stuff, we came back and, uh, when we were discussing how we were going to fix it, my host, the Mola was already fixing it. And, uh, because it's just, just like this absolute star of a guy. So the funny thing was, as I was making this, as I was laying this out, the Mola was fixing it. I was drawing the Mola fixing the sink instead of fixing it myself and drawing the speech bubbles of what me and Otto were talking about and how he wanted to get my dad on shrooms and all that. And, um, at the end of this whole thing, he just struck my book with the sword because he's, you know, he's, he's a very energetic and spontaneous, uh, adrenaline driven character, but, uh, but it's, uh, definitely an insightful one. I could have probably write a whole book about Otto. Actually, I was going to make my, uh, my graduation film about him, but, um, yeah. I don't really know where I'm going with this answer, to be honest. Maybe <laughs> just, just cut it out. What yeah. is, uh, what is your, has your impression been of San Francisco other than what you've already said? Like, I know you love it, but... Yeah, um, I mean, I love it not because it's perfect, but because of its contrast. You know, I'm a guy who doesn't... I'm a guy who doesn't... Um, shall I go over? Okay. Yeah. yeah, basically, I love it not because it is the place that I think it's perfect. I think it's because um, I... I love its contrast and how there's so much movement and you see so many different characters and you see that everybody is so involved with their life and they're all aiming at something. You can see that people aren't just dragging themselves. Everybody is going somewhere. And I can tell that just by the way they walk and the the way they, the way they interact. And I'm really sensible to those things. So, uh, the moment that I, I came here, I immediately noticed that atmosphere. But at the same time, um, the homelessness is pretty, is pretty severe. Um, in L.A., I already felt that, except that um, the part that I visited in Hollywood was just um, just re- really, really dirty and really smelly. And I didn't really... In Hollywood. Yeah, yeah just yeah. the surroundings of the, the Walk of Fame and all. It's just, just, it just feels like Hollywood is like this real-life half abandoned fun fair that people live in is just uh it's, it's crazy town you know it, it's just people are just all over your face you know they're it's kind of it's good that people interact with you and you know when i'm drawing people just ask me what is it that i'm doing and they want to be involved but at the same same time you get a lot of uh harassment from like random people where everyone is so i don't know they just they're just waiting to happen or something, you know, they, they want to be acknowledged for who they are so, so badly. And out here in San Francisco, it's more chilled. Um, 
but there was one day that I went to I went to this old cinema. I can't remember the name now, but we walked through Tenderloin in the, at night, and it was completely surreal. It was just like I, you know, I probably had a nightmare similar to that place. It's just everywhere you look, people are completely messed up. You know, you see, um, you know, you see a group of people and you feel nervous because there's barely any, any uh, there's barely any lights. There's no police anywhere. And uh, and you see people shooting heroin into their arms, like <laughs> right in front of a freaking, you know, uh, shop or whatever. And uh, the crazy thing is that in front of every door, like all the doors had fences, like grids, like cages. Mm-hmm. And it was just this sort of felt like, a, you know, if you played Resident Evil Three and remember, like how everything was barred shut and all. Kind of felt like people were just protecting themselves from a zombie apocalypse of homeless people. You also mentioned that it was kind of like Gotham City. Yeah, definitely. My picture of Gotham City is... Yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, Tenderloin is this weird little triangle pocket in the center of near the financial district, right in the center of San Francisco, where uh, when the first day I arrived, um, the guy at the front desk at the hostel I was staying at, he, he gave me the map and then outlined Tenderloin, crossed it all out and said, just don't go there. So... Just for those of you who need a little location idea of what the Tenderloin is all about. Yeah, it's funny because Orlando, the, this guy who walked us through it, he just said, we should totally walk through the Tenderloin. It's like such a such a thrill, such an adrenaline. It's, it's an adventure, definitely. You have to come with me. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go to such a dangerous place. I mean, I come from a dangerous neighborhood, you know. Uh, back in my hometown in Setubal. Is it? It's dangerous. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty dangerous. It's not a. You don't see what you see here. You don't. Everything is not on your face. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of robberies and you know and, and assaults and stuff, and uh, but it's not as. What can I say? You don't. Usually they catch you off guard. You don't see them coming at you or anything. It's not so. It's more of. A, you're not always thinking about it because you don't see it, even though it happens. It's, it's kind of more in the shadows, you know, and it's more concealed. It's more of a surprise attack. So it'll, it gives you that freedom to forget that you could be jumped at any moment. But in Tenderloin, you see that everybody's, you know, they're just... Unpredictable. Yeah, and, you know, and when it's when there's a severe case of, of drug abuse, as there is there, you don't really know what to expect, you know. You, and... Um, and I'm a very imaginative person, you know, and everything that I saw, I just imagined the worst case scenario. And then I could tell when you came back, I was like, how's the movie? And you're like, what is it? like two lines about the movie and then <laughs> visibly shaken by <laughs> what you saw uh, walking through Tenderloin. Yeah, it was a great movie, by the way, but Tenderloin is just reality, right? And, and it's so crazy that it's right in the heart of San Francisco, right? It's right in the middle of it. And uh, we saw like a car of police, like there was like four policemen by a car, and we asked them, "Oh, is it is it okay to walk through the Tenderloin? We're going to the cinema and such." And they said, "No, just uh, take a couple blocks up and go through there." And uh, it's just this thing that they are used to the fact that it is beyond healing, you know. And that's exactly what you know the Gotham City yeah, is. That's how they describe it. It's an irreversible uh, madhouse yeah. sort of thing. But uh, I mean. If I could revisit it as like you know a ghost, <laughs> if I could be vulnerable to its dangers, 
I wouldn't hesitate to go there and just explore it and just write about it, draw it, because it is such an ignored and and at the same time, you know, it's. I understand Orlando's excitement about it, you know, that it is completely different and just the way that people interact there in the shadows and it really has this kind of, uh, this grimy sort of wild west kind of feel. Yeah. It's just hard to, it's just hard to explain because I've never really, it might be the same feeling you might want to, it would be cool if we were in the old west. Meanwhile, um, it was pretty dangerous and rough and, yeah. um, but we have maybe a, a strange, um, how do I call it? A strange, uh, uh, what the hell is the word I'm looking for? Not nostalgia, but because it's here right now. Nostalgia for the Old West, yes, but for Tenderland, like, um, you sort of glorify the roughness, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people do. I guess, yeah, I guess it has its own special charm. But, um, the thing about the movies when they try to portray these places, um, they really portray them as this exaggerate, you know, uh, everything, you know, in the movies they don't show nothing happening. They always show, you know, someone getting jumped or whatever. But just the fact of walking through it and thinking that he could be injured at any moment or assaulted, that is the thing that I think hasn't been portrayed in movies yet properly, I think. At least the ones that I've seen or the ones on the mainstream or whatever. It's just that experiencing the ten- the tenderloin in the first person walking through it, you know, is is totally because you you want to see it, you want to see what's going on because it is so messed up. But at the same time, you don't want to be in danger, so you can't stop. You know, you can't look at people directly, and I like looking at people and drawing them. So I I had to keep all my my eyes were always like you know buzzing around, and uh, yeah, it was so odd. I still don't know what to think about it. Maybe I need to go through it again. Um, so, yeah. Um, now tell me about a little bit about uh, your hometown. Setubal? Yeah, because we touched upon it and you said it was kind of rough, but uh, under the surface. But I don't know anything about it because I was mostly living in Lisbon when I was in Portugal. But... Um, I, I do know that, uh, I think they told me on this, like street art tours that um, back in the day before it was uh, state or city commissioned street art in Lisbon, that it was kind of like a thing between Lisbon street artists and street artists from Setubal. Like they would come over the river and tag up their city and then leave and go back the next day. Yeah, I think that that, com- that goes like way, way back. Mm-hmm. Um to be honest, in my generation, you know, as a kid, I wasn't involved with that. You know, I, I kind of only really got into street art, like, um, when I started, probably when I started university and doing design and kind of, uh, getting my first contacts with, uh, with hip hop. Um, but my hometown, you know, it is this fisherman's, it was this fisherman's hub. Um, and it kind of during just, um, during the old regime in the, the second world war, uh, it became this really, um, it became this harbor for, uh, repairing boats and, uh, and also assembling new, new boats and, and also the, um, 
the conserves industry was really strong there, mm. Cons- uh, like conserving like sardines and yeah, it's uh, famous in Portugal, mackerels and stuff. It, 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 it was like the one of the hearts of our industry in terms of what we could export, and um, and it's right, it's really well situated as well in terms of you know shipping stuff out and all. And um, and the city kind of began to grow because of that. So there wasn't really a, like um, intellectually that there wasn't really nothing going on. Um, until, you know, the city developed and then we had, uh, we actually had a really famous poet called Bukaj. He's like a, a local, local poet from there. And, uh, he basically described this, this daily life and, and sort of in a very, very pecu- peculiar way. And the strangest thing is that the way that he wrote and his, um, his way with words was completely distinct from any way that people spoke there it's it's a very we speak a lot of slang there you know it's a very you know it's a fisherman's town people talk kind of funny um but now that the that the sort of the conservers industry is kind of you know hibernating and um there's not really much going on it just became sort of this the dormitory of lisbon you know a lot of people live in Setúbal just to to work in lisbon because the rent there is cheap and it's right by the beach and uh, it's kind of it's lovely during the summer, absolutely lovely, but there isn't any, there isn't any fresh culture. You know, there's a bit of what's left of old cultures. There's a few things that are trying to emerge, which are basically adaptations of, you know, American culture or whatever. Uh, but besides that, it's it's a very, it's not a very fertile soil. I mean, I've tried to organize events there and, and it, with dance and arts and, uh, and shows and all that. And it was just nothing would pick up also because of the way that the money is used in terms of the culture, you know, there's sort of the bad old cost, uh, costumes are uh, the traditions, the, the bad traditions were kept. And uh, that's where the money goes to like make the fun fairs and stuff. They spend like a couple of million, million on that. And then for the emerging uh, arts and uh, everything that is contemporary, uh, the money is just pocketed and nothing really happens. So that's one of the reasons that made me leave my hometown to begin with and and then leave my country <laughs> because um, it applies to, to the rest of the country. Um, as you know, like Portugal is a country that is under a, a great economic depression and also a political one, and uh, which is forcing us all, people from my age, people who have... You know, people with degrees, doctors, engineers, all kinds of really qualified people to leave the country for a, a decent uh, wage and the quality of life, which is crazy because Portugal has the perfect climate. It is like, it is the heaven on Europe, you know, and, uh, but because it is so corrupted and it's so badly managed, it is um, forcing us out of our own home, which is really, really sad. And it's also a, a motive of ridicule by other countries that see that we have everything and we just let it um, be mismanaged. Yeah. So in a way, I don't. I, I kind of. I don't want to be in an, in an environment where I feel frustrated and I don't have any power to change things. And um, I mean, I wish I could, maybe through art or whatever. But I, the moment that I decided to leave and I saw how interesting the rest of the world is and how much I want to learn with it. I just felt like I owed it to myself. And um, as an artist, I really depend on my environment. And I wanted to be in an environment where people are inspired and they look towards something. Um, and in Portugal, it's just, 
you know, you turn on the news and it's it's completely depressing. And you know, it's uh, the country really is uh, dying out. There's a few like bright people who are kind of you know we call them the resistance. The people stay there and try to make good things, but it is so um, depressing to see really talented people just be completely. Um, what can I say? Not stay the, on the fringe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They never break through. Maybe. Yeah. There isn't a, there isn't any support whatsoever. They're not. They're just not appreciated, and they're forced out of their country. Um, like myself. So where did you went straight to London? Um, I moved from Portugal uh, from my hometown, Setúbal, to Porto when I was seventeen, mm-hmm. and then I studied design for two years. And uh, the moment that I realized that something was wrong with the course, it was it was not properly. How can I say? I think that I would still like to study design. It's just the way that it was taught there went against my the way that I see things and the way I do things. I didn't really think that they were teaching creativity. I felt like they were just making the people that they wanted to work for them because all the teachers there had like their own studios, and mm-hmm. that's what they did. You know, they they. M- Pick up people with talent. They would educate them to serve them, and then they would end up working for them, and that's it. And then discard the ones that don't work. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I felt like I had potential for it, and uh, I was kind of one of the the favorites for being so easy with drawing and exposing my ideas and concepts. But at the same time, I didn't feel like those were the people that I wanted to learn from. Maybe at the, at the business standard, yes, they were very they were very. Um, can I say, very, very sharp with their eyes on the money, but that's not why I chose this course to begin with. And so I kind of dropped out to pursue animation because that's one of the things that I wanted to do originally. So I moved to London, and um, my par- my father was working there at the time. He's a welder. He's working for this big company called CBI. They have, you know, they work with, uh, they, make the, they make gas tanks and all kinds of, you know, natural gas um, constructions and, and all that and pipelines and uh, so I went there to visit my father and see some unis and um, and I saw this one in Maidstone and I studied animation arts for one year and um, and there I also felt like the course was <laughs> the, the the university had excellent conditions and uh, and the students uh, the, the teachers were actually some of them were really interesting people but my colleagues were just what I didn't know was that the level of entry was so low that my colleagues were just, most of them were just, you know, just spoiled British kids just wanting to do an easy course and not really putting any heart into it. And I was constantly, like, frustrated because I wanted to work with people who were also enthusiastic about what they were doing. And I had a friend there, Roland. We made amazing things together, but we both felt like our money would be best invested in another place. So then I went to Kingston, which was one of the highest regarded universities in, in England, and I applied directly to the second year. And they saw kind of I had a mixed background and uh, and I had an interesting pitch as well. So they took me in directly to second year, and uh, then I graduated from it in animation. Even though I hated my end of the year, my degree, <laughs> my degree film, um, that's where I ended up uh, graduating. And then I just stuck around in London, um, doing all kinds of small jobs uh, for a year after university. I kind of just wanted to kind of free myself a bit and just live rather than. Uh, overwork myself in drawing. So I just dedicated one year to dancing. That's when I started street dancing, doing locking, a funk style from the 70s. 
How did you get into that? It was, um, I had seen it once before and I didn't know what it was. Um, I was in, um, in Europe and um, actually in Porto, there was an event, Euro battle and I saw it live. But then I kind of, I, I liked it. I really liked it, but I never thought that it'd be something that I'd get involved with, but I liked the atmosphere. And then there was this one year, um, my first year in Kingston, I went with, uh, some guys from, uh, in the student union to see, uh, UK B-Boy champs. And, uh, and there I saw the locking finals. There was this guy, Ray and Flocky, um, these two guys from Germany against, uh, two girls from Japan and their character and the way they danced was so funny, was so energetic, was so funky. And it kind of matched my, my energy there because, you know, I'm, I'm usually a very, uh, what can I say? Very energetic person, very positive and happy. Peppy. Yeah, Peppy. Peppy. <laughs> well, I would say that. Yeah, well, I don't know if you like that. But. No, I don't like that word at all. No. <laughs> just full of pep. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it kind of matched my energy. So I just basically, uh, I just asked people, what is this style? What is it? Where do, where do I learn this? And they told me about this place called the Trocadero in London, where street dancers used to hang out. And they said that I might find some lockers there. Which Can you is, explain a little bit what locking is for those of us who don't know? So locking is this dance in which um, it's a dance that is done to funk and soul music, and uh, its uh, its structure is um, is based on the the soul dances from like the 70s, 60s, and uh, mixed with uh, the technique of locking, which was created by Don Campbell. He's from LA, and um, basically Don couldn't dance like others did. But he, he created these moves, this just sort of, this very, uh, very strong poses, very, very animation-like to sort of, uh, to get attention anyway, you know, to kind of look cool. And, um, but at the same time, all these, these movements that he created came from real life situations. So, for example, we, there's this wrist roll that we do. Uh, it's called roll because it, it is uh, the roll rolling of the dice from Vegas from the mm. casinos and stuff. But that that movement he picked it up from from the rolls, and he just created that move, the wrist roll, because he felt like it was there was a dynamic to it. The funny thing is that Don didn't really have any education. You know, he was a street kid, you know, and but he had this really good eye for the things that were visually interesting, and uh, it kind of just picked up on those and kind of mashed them together. And I created this movement, which was called the lock, where you're kind of going to a slouch and kind of just slightly, you know, kind of push the hip to the side, flex one knee and keep the other straight and sort of, you know, just just lock into that position. So locking is just sort of this, uh, you know, there's there is swift movements and there's body dynamics, but they all stop somewhere. And that stopping on the beat, usually on the snare, is is where we apply the lock to sort of emphasize that certain sound of the music. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a dance style, and you just you're just giving body to the music. But its its characteristics are very. It's hard to describe it in in words, but its characteristics are very cartoony. You know, it's it's all about just projecting this energy, this funk, and going crazy, going really really crazy. That's why I loved it. 
you know, we have people jumping from a stage to the, to the crowds into a split and then playing with people around, you know, there's all this interaction and there's actually a code of, of conduct and all the movements have a certain meaning where the way you point at somebody means, oh, I see you over there, or the way you roll and the pace, the pace used to be just, you know, just, um, what do you call it? Uh, that's on that like the shaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pacing was basically that, you know, pace, pace, pace. And you got the roll, which usually precedes a point. And uh, and then there's the up lock, which we call the up, which basically means, hey, what's up? It's in a sort of peace. You know, in the streets, that movement, you know, just lifting your arms up. It just meant that, you know, I come in peace. I have no weapons. I have nothing. What's up? And, uh, and all these things from the culture of uh, Southern California kind of merge into this style that has a language of its own and uh, apply and join together with the soul dances that come from gospel uh, just form the, the style of locking as a dance style and originally the lockers were seven you know um, there was Don who created this movement and then to him joined a bunch of guys like Tony Gogo Skeeter Rabbit um, Tony Basil really, really famous choreographer. She was actually like the producer of the locker. She's the one that kind of brought it all together. And it was Shabadoo and uh, who else have I, who have I not mentioned? Oh, there was, uh, what was his name? Slim. Um, he was the guy who did the robot in, in the shows. And, and then there was one more. Uh, I can't remember his name. It was this really incredible acrobatic guy. He had this background in, uh, it was like a, a champion in, uh, what do you call it? Not cheerleading, but, uh, you know, doing flips and all that stuff. Uh, what do we call them? <laughs> I don't have no idea. But anyway, <laughs> that guy could like, you know, he could do crazy, crazy stunts. But it basically, it was this really eclectic group that sort of uh, just joined all their qualities individually. And they made these shows on Soul Train. And, you know, it was, it was incredible because it was at the time that the black culture was being spread out in TV for the first time. You know, Soul Train was a really, really special program. And this is when this, uh, this black culture came out. And uh, it was basically, you know, the kids from the ghetto, uh, blacks and Latinos coming together to to express their their culture and that was a really really special time and and um the dance of locking really has at, at its original state it has that psychology and that quality to it um but the way that is being spread out you know like anything that goes global it is losing those, those meanings which is really hard on the originals which created this movement and uh yeah that's that's the that's a really it's really sad to see how the culture can be taken from something for the sake of, you know, globalization or whatever. And what people don't understand is that this is a culture that belongs to a certain group of people. It is theirs. It is, you know, hip hop isn't white. Hip hop is black and locking is black. So it, it, you can't, you can't take that from it and make it something else. You can't steal that, that culture. You have to respect it. And you pay respect to the elders and you pay respect to um, where it comes from and the soul and the gospel. Otherwise, what you're doing makes no sense. And that's like a really big sense of debate which has led the dance style to kind of wither. Uh, but while it has withered in the, US, in the US and Europe, it is flourishing in Asia, in Korea, in Japan, 
they're absolutely fantastic in China as well. You know, they're, you know, you go to an event there and for the qualifiers, you have over 600 dancers and the qualifiers take days just to filter the top eight. And when you go to Europe, you have maybe in total, I don't know, like 50 people or something. They're actually on the competing level. So it, it is kind of, uh, and in, in the U.S., there's, there's just, there's a few groups like the Hood Lockers and a few other people in, down in, in, in L.A. and California. Um, but it's, it's really withering down, which is, uh, it's really sad because the place where it started, there's literally nobody doing it. I mean, there is still Sugar Pop, who's still teaching, and uh, there is Shabadoo, uh, who basically lives there as well, and, and, and Don and the other guys. But the ones who are still doing it and teaching it are, are kind of, you know, they're growing old, and they're getting a bit tired of the way that, you know, they've put so much heart into this, and it is being transformed. It's just the way of, of the world, I guess. But um, but it, there's, there's nothing like, there's no, there was no bigger privilege for me than to fall in love with this style and then meet the people that started it and see how somebody like Shabadoo, um, at his, you know, at his sixties came out with us to a club when he was in London and just, and just danced with us. And it was just this thing of somebody who brought the dance all the way from the seventies, the way it was done to do it with us in 2000, like 13. It was it was so special, and it really opened my eyes to to where it comes from and its culture, and uh, and so I kind of stand for that for the old school in a way. But uh, yeah, all that aside, it was uh, it was definitely a special thing, and the the cool thing was that they transformed the dance um, to play it on TV shows and on Soul Train. They made it a very jolly dance. You know, it was it was sort of you know like big poses, and they were always smiling, smile to the camera. You know, because they wanted to be seen as a friendly, as a friendly community. Mm. And uh, but the thing is that not all of the dance was jolly and happy and silly. It was actually, you know, in the terms of the, of its culture, it was a bad dance. You know, if someone was good at locking, you know, if someone was was really good at dancing, they were bad because it was the dance that was used to seduce women. You know, it was soulful, it was funky, it was serious, it was strong, and it was a display of acrobatics and and soulfulness. You know, it was. Like there's people that I've seen dancing. Of course, there's you know there's the, the performers and the people who the events and battles and all. And then there's the people who just get down in the clubs. Like my friend in London, Thomas. That guy is an absolute god when he dances. You can see the soul. You know, you can see the the the. I'm gonna use. It's kind of controversial because I'm a white guy saying these things, but you can see the blackness of it. You can see where it comes from, and it's absolutely. It is unreachable. I know I can never dance like him. It is absolutely wonderful, and it, it is it is bad. That guy is absolutely bad when he dances, and nobody would ever fuck with him. You know, when he's basically like when he comes in and dances, he, he rules. You know, and that's that's a wonderful thing to see. It, it can't really be explained. You just gotta go there and hang out with the guy, which is actually like one of my brothers. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, one of our. Um, um, between the lockers, there was a really special guy, Greg, Greg Campbellock Jr. He was, uh, I got this info from Shabadoo himself because, um, when he came to London, Shabadoo, and, uh, we talked about the origins and all, he kind of gave me this insight to what it used to be. And that's how I found out that he was a completely different thing in the ghetto and in the clubs that he was on TV. And I was getting all this, you know, all these gems, all this real information in the first place. 
the first person. And unfortunately, Greg is no longer no longer among us. He died about a year before I started the dance. And they said everybody talks about Greg with tears in their eyes. He was just this absolutely solid bloke, you know. He was he danced like nobody else did. He was so so charismatic, so soulful. And to Shabadoo, um, who is like you know, is the movie star from Breaking and, and Breaking Two. He was like the first guy to like bring hip hop into like the the big screen. He's had quite a career in in in, in that sense, and he's absolutely like he's he's been an idol to all these kids growing up from the 70s and all. And uh, he told me personally that Greg was a god to him because Greg was an ugly guy and when he danced, he always got women. You know, he always got girls because of the way he danced, even though he was ugly. And then to him, that was magic. It was like, you know, and uh, so... That's the, the real magic of, of this dance, you know, and, and in its culture. It's not, it's not something that is meant to look beautiful or something. It's just really soulful. It is, there's this, uh, I can't even describe it, but the, it's, its power and its attraction comes from this connection to sort of a, a higher power in music that comes from the roots of gospel and all that. But people don't even know because it is so familiar, but they don't know what it is that they're seeing. But it strikes them at such an emotional level. So, uh, I mean, I never had the chance to meet Greg, but I'm meeting him through others, which is an absolutely wonderful experience. You know, even this year I was in Sweden, all the way in Sweden, and uh, Rob, who was like one of the the big pillars of locking there. He, when he was talking about Greg and how he brought it to Sweden and how they got him there and they taught him, he just went to tears and, and, and the rest of the people who had met Greg joined him. So, and I felt like, who is this man? Why haven't I met him? You know, how could I miss him by like a couple of years or something? And, um, and yeah, it's just this, uh, in a way it's, uh, it's sad because it's losing its essence, but at the same time it's beautiful because it is a family thing, you know, it, it's not, it is sort of in the mainstream, even though it's, it keeps getting pushed onto the side, but just the fact that the magic of this dance style le- lives in the clubs and in, in the, you know, the events, the locking camps and all that, where people really, really, really get, really get together and, and they dance together and they learn together and they have fun, they have lots of fun. For me, that's more special than any other dance style, you know. And um, just to think that something that comes from the ghettos, that comes from the street, has such a good soulful expression that can be, you know, that can be universal, that can be felt by people from all these other cultures when explained and taught in the right way is just absolutely beautiful, you know. And that's the thing with most black cultures. They come from such a sad and hard life, but they bring so much good emotion out of it. And and that's something that it has to be valued. It has to be treasured. And and it's and there's nothing more uh, revolting than seeing it being uh, distorted and mutated. And that that is sort of the struggle that goes with the originals right now, um, because they're worried about who is going to continue this, you know. And um, and sort of Europe is trying to take over in a way because they're very outspoken and very connected very well. I think there's something to be said about 
harsh conditions producing good art. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing to be said about how mainstream always takes it and sells it and it profits out of it and destroys it. Uh, poppy and bubble gummy. Yeah. Yeah. Happens to, for example, transformation of hip hop into something that it's not the same as it was anymore. Uh, rock yeah. and roll as well. Rock and roll coming from, from the blues and being taken and making it into I mean, I would look back on it nostalgically, like those old 50s bands that just produced songs that all sound the same, but uh, mm-hmm. it's just always this, this this same trend of yeah, I mean, it is taking the original and making a mass production of it. Yeah, it's yeah. the masses. I mean, it's what people can relate to, what people are ready to embrace. And if they're not ready to embrace a certain culture, they will not, they just won't engage with it, no matter how good it is. If they're not ready, if they can't see it, if they can't feel it, then, um, you know, and if you can't profit out of it, eventually it will wither out. I think, yeah, then there's a value to this version because then if they, if that becomes popular, then there will be a fraction, I'll say, of the audience that wants to see where the roots are and then they discover what you've been talking about. Yeah, but there's a lot of lies. There's a lot of lies as well. Yeah. There's a lot of lies. There's people who are distorting it who are as the term goes whitewashing it ah, yeah. people trying to take credit for things that they didn't do mm. and um, the problem is that some of those people are really well spoken yeah, that's the malicious part of this because you know uh, we're talking about people who created something beautiful but they were raised in the ghetto you know they don't have the, the same diplomatic skills mm. and um, and there are some who have like especially Shabadu he's, he's done a He's really like stood up for what it is originally, but he's also, he can be really harsh and some people are not ready for that. And it was amazing when I met him because he was really harsh with me, but I knew that this guy, when he, when he explained it to me, because I wanted to know the truth so much and he saw that and he just kind of demonstrated to me what it was. And when I saw him dance and when I saw the conviction, the passion and all this, it was a completely different level. And, um, so since then I followed him and I've learned so much with him and, uh, I really admire him despite like all the controversy that, that goes around him because, you know, he says some stuff online, you know, he bashes people a bit, but, uh, I know where it comes from. It comes from the place of trying to preserve the culture. You know, it, it doesn't want to be loved. He just wants to preserve the thing he loves the most. So, uh, I think that, you know, anyone who has, you know, uh, a brain <laughs> and respect they should uh, understand where this comes from and that it comes from a good intention a good place have you incorporated um, locking or the people that you've met in the community into your your artwork not yet not yet because uh, dancing was my social life mm-hmm. and uh, the funny thing is I don't usually hang out with artists until recently with an event called Trojan Horse with a Unicorn. And it was an event created by André Lorenzo in Portugal, which has attracted artists, digital artists from all around the world, just to like actually li- live in the same area for like a couple days and have talks together and kind of interact and all on a non-mass level. And that's when I really started to hang out with artists a bit more because the artists that I'd met until then were a bit, you know, it's just the nature of artists, you know, we're, we're a bit more introverts and, and shy and, and messed up all in different ways. And it's really hard to have 
a, a person who is a great artist and and also a functional and a nice sociable human being. So that's why I always kind of grew a bit distance from him. And uh, but with dance, he was just he, he was just so liberating. It was this balance that I was working on my work on the studio, and in the free time, I would just you know I remember when I was in uni my last year when the dance was really becoming a part of my life, you know, I would go, I would go out twice a week. I would go all the way to a place called Madame Jojo's on Sundays. And I would take the, I would take the train there for like an hour and I would party until like three o'clock and I'll take the night bus back for like two and a half hours and then sleep like two hours and then go to class next day because that was the only place where I could really live soul music and I could really dance and uh, and for me that was it was worth the trip every time he'd be like oh shit I have to go all the way to London to Central to just uh, to just dance for a bit but every time I would come back on that bus all sweaty and all you know sticky and think about how much fun I had and how much how purged I felt it was just absolutely beautiful so I did that for, uh, for about a year and uh, and then the year that I took for myself I was just basically clubbing almost like maybe three, four times a week. You know, I was kind of, I was living like a professional dancer and, and, uh, and sort of, um, an animator on the side and doing my drawing on the side. But I liked that. I, it was important for me because it really, it made me go to places. It made me meet people. It also helped me discover Sort of, because you know, when you dance, you interact with people differently. So it changed the way that I that I interact with people, the way that I interact with women, you know, and um, just sort of getting used to the physicality of it. And uh, and it's cool, you know, it, it's great to like to get props from a girl after after dancing, you know, getting down with with my friends, and then seeing that there's that there's that a little sparkle there from the corner and stuff, and to know that actually, shit, I suddenly became cool, you know. Just by not because I wanted to be cool, just because I love this dance, and I, I was so free in it, and that kind of transcends. So, um, yeah, I, I felt like it was something that completed my life, and it was good to have this balance of these two things. So, dancing my social life and drawing my my commitment, my mission, whatever. I tried to make dance my the main thing in my life because it made me so happy, but I just there was no way I could become a professional dancer at the age of twenty two. You know, and uh, so I took a step back and stuck to what I'm good at. And um, but even when when I was working with a regular job, I was still going out like three times a week, just completely like uh, juicing myself out, uh, which will eventually led me like to just being really ill for a while, because there's no way you can survive by you know uh, sleeping like you know four hours a day every three days, and uh, yeah, that that takes a toll. So. I had to take it easy, but it's all about balance, you know, and, and I've just recently discovered that we don't need to make that much money, especially if you work as a freelancer, you know, if you don't have a lot of expenses, if you're not a person that is into luxury, you can live on very little and you can enjoy, enjoy a lot of life. Yeah, and you can be just as rich. Yeah. Not yeah. with money, but. Exactly. And people envy that, you know, people really, people who are working every day. And you know they they've got their iPhones and they've got all this fancy stuff. And they're they driving their, their new car. Black Friday toys. Yeah, and then and then you see like how I don't you see how they all go through this you know uh, spiritual crisis mm -hmm. 
of uh, you know what am I doing with my youth? You know where where am I young? You know, and uh, and I feel like I can I can only dance like this now. You know, and uh, and locking is really tough on the joints. You know, it really messes you up. So you, you kind of need to be young for it. You can still dance. You know, you can groove to it even when you're older. Or like freaking Shabadoo, who's like 62 and he dances like he's freaking 20. But that's another story. You know, those are special cases. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is urgent. This is right now. And it really completes my life because I am, you know, I was, it's, it's a funny thing, but, um, I don't know if it's connected to the way that I was brought. I was raised a Catholic, uh, not really in, in my house, but because of scouts and all that, you know, I went to, you know, the little, uh, church school or whatever you call it here. And, uh, I was always like used to this idea of spirit, you know, of, uh, of soul. And, um, and I always, I always respected that, you know, I, 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 I was the kid, I was always making jokes about the Bible and all that stuff to keep myself entertained through the sessions. But when we were actually in prayer and together, I always respected that because I always felt it. And, um, and with dance, it was just this, it, it is actually a physical thing, you know, it's, you know, when you pray, you're like all crouched down or whatever with your hands together, you're still, but when you're dancing, you are, you're just, you, you are in motion, you are in, when you listen to a soulful track, to uh, some beautifully sad tune, you know, or you, and you express like all your negative energy, turn it into positive, just reverse charge it like that. And, and you, and you feel absolutely purged after it, you know, that's why they're called soul dances in the first place. But that's something that really purifies me in a way. You know, that's how I keep myself sane with all the stuff that's going on around me. I mean, I'm not blind to what's going on in the world, even though I try not to get too involved with the news and all that, because I just feel like I can't handle it. And that's the only reason that I don't follow it. It's just because I can't. Um, but the way that I kind of cope with it is by, by dancing. And and it doesn't make the world a better place that much, but, you know, it, it does. Um, it is a good energy that it, that it spreads. And, and that's always worth it. Yeah, it definitely is. So, uh, yeah. I mean, you see me get down. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, maybe you do have a... Okay, let's go through this. Do you have a website or some sort of ways that people can see your artwork? Do you have that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a Behance account with uh, with my Elias on the internet, which is you know, Nuno, S-Y-O-U-K-N-O-W, as you know, I know, everybody uh-huh, knows. Uh-huh. You know, Nuno, dot, uh, dot Behance, uh, dot com, or Behance.com slash you know, Nuno, some mm-hmm. shit like that. Uh, but the cool thing is, you know, the story by everyone, just Google story by everyone, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. That's where I'm uh, posting all the stuff about, you know, the real work, which is not my portfolio. It's my project right now. That's what you're you're doing, your purpose. Yeah, it definitely is my purpose, you know. It's funny because since I started making this book, I used to be a bit, you know, I used to be very, very carefree. I didn't really, you know, maybe two years I went, two years ago I crossed the tender line. I wouldn't really care, you know. I'd just be like, if something has to happen, it happens. But since I started this book and I feel like I'm learning so much with it and there might be some truth in it because it is a special concept, I feel like I have to make this book happen. I need to finish it. And that absolutely frightens me to the bone, the idea of dying, not finishing this book. And uh, I was talking this to a friend of mine and she says, 
oh, it's like you found the meaning of life. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm thinking how beautiful it is that you find the meaning of life the moment you become absolutely terrified of death, that it will stop you from doing what you're doing now. I think, in a way, I accept it as my meaning of life and that I feel like that's where I put everything that I am into one single thing, one practice. And that's why I can't stop doing it. You know, And that's why it is more important than my job or my income and whatever, mm-hmm. as long as I can stay on the surface and do this, you know, I mean, that's what I was doing for four months when I was, you know, living on a couch and eating stir fry every day and, and little energy bars that my friend got me from his job. And I was happy just doing that, you know, and I realized how I could be happy just doing this and it's what I'm meant to do. And I wouldn't have found that if I hadn't gone through that stage of quitting my job and, uh, Sort of, um, how can I say, loathing the lifestyle that I was beginning to have, living in the studio, editing videos, you know, going out of the house at 7 a.m. and coming back at, at 6 and making my money every day so that I could buy fancy shoes and a coat and all that and be a Londoner. Um, I think that I went to London looking for, you know, a life of culture and all that. When I found out that the best way, the best experience I've had that was the defeat from the city that led me to conquer my practice, my my sort of calling, which is what I did as a child. You know, when I was a kid, I it just always comes clipped, back, doesn't it? I clipped pages together and I drew cartoons in it. You know, before I had a computer or a PlayStation or whatever, I would just to entertain myself. I'd clip pages together and draw about the things that I didn't have because my friends would have Pokemon and all these games and whatever, and I used to literally draw frames of the game and stuff and then invent new things you know and sequence them and that's how that's how i entertain myself doing that and it's funny enough there's a market for it and then i did all these circles and i tried all these jobs and i studied design and animation and it comes and, back and film theory and just to do what i did as a child you know and uh and that's it's uh, quite funny i guess i'm still and then yeah, the second thing is uh, where can people see your dancing online? My dancing, um, well, just go on YouTube, and you can write "gentle luck" as in gentleman, you know, gentle luck altogether, mm-hmm. or just write "Nuno Nevis locking gentle luck," you know, and you'll find it. It's pretty pretty straightforward. You'll probably see some really old ones. Just make sure that you look at the date because <laughs> anything before 2015 is pretty uh, embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great having you on. Thanks for being on Fun Book Diplomacy. Yeah, man, you're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs>